Thanks for taking some time to listen to this message on the Elevate Church podcast. We believe that God will speak to you wherever you are. Now, let's prepare our hearts and hear what God has for us today. If you weren't here last week, we kicked it off and just said this is a study through the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to bring it every single week with you. We have Bibles available to you. If you do not have your own Bible, of course, you can use the Bible app, version. And follow along, but I think it's important to have God's word in your hands. You can follow along, you can, you know, underline, you can highlight. Like, is it okay to write in your Bible? Yes, it's okay. You just can't take stuff out of your Bible, all right? You can't delete anything, but you can definitely, you know, mark it up. Uh, and so I'd encourage you to bring that because this is a study through the book of Philippians, who, who the author is Paul. Which, by the way, Paul planted all these churches, and what he would do is he would write these letters back to the churches that he planted. And, the, and scholars say that he planted somewhere between 14 and 20 churches. How awesome is that? And he'd plant all these churches, and he'd write back to them. And, and this is a letter that Paul wrote in 52 AD, which was 52 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's writing back to this church that he helped plant with this major theme of joy. Philippians is all about joy, but the crazy thing is he's writing about joy from prison, from a Roman prison. He's awaiting execution. He's more than likely chained to a guard, and he's telling us about joy. And so last week, we kicked this thing off and said, hey, you already have it inside of you. You should know that. It's there. If you've crossed the line of faith, if you said yes to following Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and something that he brings is known as the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, patience, Kindness, joy is a big one. Gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, all these things. So you have it inside of you. You need to know that. So we need to tap into what's inside of us. And so we talked about how do we do that? Well, we got to choose joy. Then maybe we're not, you know, to pursue something. Instead, we're to be filled with something that God has for us, this love, this lasting joy that's available to us. And we also said, like, Daniel LaRusso, if you remember the karate kid. Like, he didn't know it was in him, did he? Like, he was learning how to fight all along, wax on, wax off, all that good stuff, but it was inside of him, and the same is true with the joy inside of you. So some of you just need to declare, I have joy. Man, I'm joy-filled. God, what do you want to do in my life? Well, today, we're going to look at chapter 2, if you have your Bible, chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I thought it would be great to share with you some things that bring me joy personally. Uh, of cor- course, the first and foremost thing that brings me joy is right here. That's my beautiful wife, Kristen. Kiki, do you love me? All right, that's like Kristen. All right. And, and guess what? I mean, we were, this, was, this was a year ago. <laughs> Pre-COVID. And now look at us. Are you kidding me right now? No, but that's my wonderful, beautiful wife. Like, I couldn't imagine doing life without her. She is the joy uh, of my life. And she has also given me uh, some children that also bring me joy sometimes. Here they are right here. Now, I, I would normally, uh, I can't tell you their names because I made an arrangement with my boys that every time I say their name in church, I owe them $5. But just because it's Joy Jitsu... These are my boys, Wade, Jake, Park, and Gray. You're welcome. There's $5 for you. Uh, They're super rad. I love them. They're amazing. And uh, something else that's brought us joy uh, just this this week, by the way, is Will and Kelsey on our staff. They had their baby, Nora. Come on, how beautiful is she? 
Amazing, Nora Ann Law. She was born last Monday, but just a heads up, she is already spoken for. Like, you need to know that. Because the night before she was born, this is my four-year-old Gray, unscripted, unprompted. This is what he had to say about her. Take a look. Okay, Gray. <laughs> it's time for bed. What's special about tonight? So you're excited to meet her? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Really so, excited. Really excited? So when you wake up? Yeah. She's going to be born. All born. And your wife will be here. Yep. All right. So there you go. Listen, if that doesn't bring you joy right there, I think we can just go. Let's pray and go home. Uh, just so you know, the happy couple is going to be getting married on July 1st, 2047. So <laughs> save the dates. Save the dates. They're registered at the Children's Place and at Carter Baby, reception to follow at Chuck E. Cheese, or any local playground. No, I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, but I, I love that. Uh, one more thing that, that I think could bring me joy, but I'm not real certain, is this right here. This is the new Tesla truck. And so if anybody wants to help a brother out, figure if this could bring me joy, my Venmo is Colby, and I'm just kidding, it's not. How many of you know joy is something that we have to fight for? we got to fight for it. And that's what Paul is instructing us in this letter that he wrote to this, this church. The behind the idea of the series Joy Jitsu is the reality that we need to learn the art of fighting for joy, no matter what we face. In fact, here's the big idea of chapter 2. I'm just going to give it to you up front, write it down. It's this. It's not about you. Uh-oh. In fact, turn to your neighbor right now and tell him, it's not about you. Go ahead. Do it with some attitude. It's not about, you've been waiting to tell him that all day. It's not about you. An alternate, alternate title would be, uh, it's time to get a slice of humble pie. I almost called it that, humble pie. Here we go. In the 15th century, there was a guy named Copernicus, um, who would say something, he was an astronomer, mathematician, who would say something that challenged the way the majority of people thought during his day. It was revolutionary for his time because up until the time he came onto the scene, the predominant thinking was that the earth was the center of the universe and that everything revolved around the earth. So the sun revolved around the earth, the, the, the stars, the moon, like everything revolved around the earth. But he came on to the scene and he challenged this thinking. Here's what he said. When it comes to earth being the center of the cosmos, if a man is to know the truth, he must change his way of thinking despite what he's said for years. He said the earth is not the center of the cosmos, but just one celestial body among many. The sun does not move around us. Rather, we move around the sun. And so this idea became known as the Copernicus Revolution, and it, and it radically changed the way we thought about our place in the universe, the way we thought about our place in the, the cosmos and the solar system. 
And then on the, the 20th century, a guy shows up onto the scene. His name was Jean Piaget. He was a psychologist, and he studied children, uh, like, behavior patterns. And this is what he said. He said, each and every child must experience their own Copernicum revolution. Where they find the place, they get to the place, they realize the world does not revolve around them. Come on, parents, say amen right there. Doesn't revolve around you. I know, some, I know some adults that have not reached their Copernicum revolution yet. Doesn't revolve around you. He said there comes a, a day where we have to learn that as a child, if I run into the wall, the wall's not going to move. If I run out in front of a car, the car might not stop, that I am not the center of the universe. That every child, in order to grow and mature and become an adult, has to experience this idea that it's not about you. And so this is what Paul reminds us of in Philippians chapter 2. He says, hey, it's not about you. The world does not revolve around you. In fact, I think the question Paul would ask us is, have you had a, a not a Copernicum revolution, but a joy revolution yet? Because you'll find lasting joy when you understand this principle that is not about you. Here we go. Dive in. Verse 1 says this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. Remember who he's talking to, these people that he loves. Man, this church has just given him lots of joy. He said, I pray for you every time I think of you. It just gives me joy. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion is, is like he's saying, you know what, isn't Jesus good? You have any encouragement from him? Have you been comforted by him? Have you been given tenderness through him? Come on, isn't he, he good? In verse 2 he says, then make my joy complete by being, watch this, like-minded, having the same love. So my joy will be complete when, when your joy, when you have joy, having the, the same love for each other, being one in spirit, one in purpose. Don't, don't forget that. We're going to come back to that. And then being the good pastor that he is, it's not all just encouragement, encouragement, encouragement. He also gives them some warnings. He says, hey, I love you guys, but there are some things that you need to watch out for. There are some things out there that are going to uh, want to steal the joy that you have. And so he says, look at it in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. So don't do those other things. Instead, be humble. Consider others better than yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests, each of you to the interests of others. And this is a warning that Paul gives us that we have to receive because underneath the, the theme of this idea of joy, uh, underneath all that, the reality of this series is it's about maturity. How many of you know it takes maturity to have humility? You got to be mature. And so he says this is about humbling our, ourselves, and we want to guard against these joy killers that are so present in our generation. And Paul lists two of them. He says selfish ambition and vain conceit. Let's call the first one, write it down, the joy killer of self-promotion. Isn't this the age of me, myself, and I? That it's all about me. Everything revolves around me. The common phrase of our day is I got to get mine. I'm going to get what's, what's coming to me. It's the attitude that we see in our culture. And to some degree, we all have a, a level of self-promotion in our lives. 
to some degree, this, this bulldozing over people, this, this of, of, hey, I'm just going to you know, push everybody aside, push anything aside in order to get what's coming to me. The other one that he mentions, the other joy killer, vain conceit, let's call this one self-absorption. This obsessive need for approval, for accolades, for applause, this constant um, attention-seeking. Come on, how many of you know we see this all over social media? This idea that somebody comment about me, say something good about me, you know, tell me how awesome I am, how well do I do at that, tell me how, how good I look, tell me how great I am. But we also see it playing out in the sense of, well, I'm not feeling so good, so I need you to lift me up. I need you to tell me how good I am. I'm, I'm having a bad day, so I need you to tell me how great I am. Of course, we don't say that online. What do we say online? We, we just kind of post things like, um, this sucks, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> oh, what sucks? Tell me about it. Or frowny face emoji. Oh, what's going on? Right? It's this obsessive need that we have for people to, to say, you know, are you okay? It's all, about, it's all about you. Everyone look at me. Everyone, you know, comfort me, make me feel better. And every year, by the way, the Oxford Dictionary puts out a word of the year. You know what it was in 2013? Selfie. That's the word of the year. The, the word of the year is not even a real word. According to the Oxford Dictionary, here's the definition of a selfie. It's a photograph that one has taken of oneself and uploaded to a social media platform. So it's a, it says it's a picture of yourself typically taken with a handheld device at a slightly tilted angle. <laughs> That's the word of the year in 2013. Selfie. Look at me. Comment on me. Tell me how great I look. Tell me how great I, I am. Or, or, you know, I'm doing great or I'm doing bad. Either way, it should be all about me. Talk about me. Think about me. Me, me, me. Here are some stats I found about selfies. I think these are interesting. Uh, you might think these are interesting. If you don't, just take a selfie. I don't care. But here's what it says. 25% of selfies are taken by those 50 years old and older. What's up, Granny? Come on. Bathroom, duck lips, <laughs> selfie. Is that not crazy? 25%. Globally, we take 98 million selfies a day. Millennials will take an average of 26,000 selfies in their lifetime. Correction, they will post 26,000. They will take 26 million, right? <laughs> Oh, I didn't like that picture. That was a bad angle. My hair was out of place. You know, there was too much cleavage showing. You know, delete. There's not enough cleavage showing. Delete. That's real. I'm just keeping it real. We live in a world of selfie. And here's what you should know. Selfies are dangerous. Yeah, no, I, I mean, they really get in your mind. It causes us to compare. It lowers my self-esteem. No. I'm talking about they are physically dangerous. Last year, more people died taking selfies than shark attacks. Why? Because people are dumb. <laughs> because I got to show you how awesome I am, so I'm going to get as close to the edge of this cliff that I can take. I'm going to get out on this ledge of this, this building. Or I'm going to get by this wild animal and take a picture of me. This just happened last week. Someone was killed by a bear because they want to take a picture close to a bear. Like, here I am with the bear. Hashtag me chilling with a grizzly. Hashtag me being eaten by a grizzly. You know, that's seriously. And for what? For what? To get six more likes 
on that photo than on the last photo that you posted. Like, really? It is this self-driven culture. And Paul warns us. He's like, this is a joy killer. Selfish ambition, vain conceit, self-promotion, self-absorption for what? A, a, A momentary happiness, a quick hit of dopamine when people like your photo. Like, here's another like, oh, yeah, that feels good. Here's another like that feels good. But what happens when the, the likes stop coming? See, unfortunately, here's what I believe. That this drive for uh, attention-seeking on social media, and by the way, you don't have to agree with this. Um, you have the right to be wrong. It's fine. <laughs> this has not made us better people. I, I read a survey that said Americans today are quicker to become angry than they ever have before. And don't you see that? With what's happening in our world, we're at this boiling point. And it all stems from, uh, that article said it stems from this incessant focus on self. That we are ready to ignite, we're ready to pop off in in a moment. This particular survey concluded Uh, And this might be kind of harsh, but I think there's a little truth to it. It says that we are a nation of narcissists. That's what we've become. This self, this this causing depression, anxiety, this focus on self. And I know this is a little heavy to start out with, but I think we um, end up in these cultural trends not because we're bad people. I think we end up in these places because it's human nature. It's human nature to want to get ahead. It's human nature to want to be liked. It's human nature, right, to, to get mine. But can I tell you something? God does not want us living according to human nature, according to the natural, but he wants us living a supernatural life with a supernatural joy that comes from a different place. And so Paul builds on this. He says, you're not living for, for that. You're not just living for a, the applause. You have a, a greater cause to focus on. He says, now that I've warned you about this, let me tell you what to do. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Wow. Not this vain conceit, not this self-promotion. He says, live like Jesus lived. Verse 6, and here's how he lived. Who lived, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a what? A servant, underline that, highlight that. That Jesus' attitude, what Paul is trying to teach us is he came as a servant. He's a servant. He humbled himself. Verse 8, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Is anybody thankful for Jesus today? That he would do that for us. That he didn't come, hey, look at me, I'm the big idea, I'm the Messiah of the world, you know, I got it going on. No, he humbled himself. Jesus is great because he came low. He just knew something about about the kingdom, you know, culture, the fact that the last will be first and the first will be last. And he knew that in order to be elevated, he first had to humble himself. And so that's what he did in verse 9. It says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name Above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. We have a great God. 
So here's the key I want you to write down to our joy. Super easy, super simple, two words, serve somebody. Serve somebody. See, we cultivate joy in, in, in through our serving others. It sounds so simple, but how many of you know easier said than done to live this way? To live like Jesus. That's what the header says in my Bible. It says, take on the attitude of Christ. How do I, how do, I do that? Jesus didn't make anything about him. He refused to make life about him. He humbled himself to the worst execution imaginable that we can even think of. He said, not my will, but, but your will. He humbled himself in the garden in Mark chapter 14. That's what he said. If there's any way for this cup to pass from me, like, but not my will, not what I want, God. What, what you want be done, I'm here to, to serve, not to be served. And Hebrews 12, 2 um, expounds on this in a beautiful way. It says this, so let us Fix our eyes on Jesus. And let's think about his attitude. Let's think about how he lived his life. Let's fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, that it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Come on, the joy? For the joy he endured the cross. Can I tell you something? It was not nails that held Jesus to that cross. It was joy. It was the joy that was before him. What was the joy before him? It was you. It was me. It was redemption. It was God's plan coming to fulfillment through his son. Like that was the joy that was in front of him. Jesus said, I get to be on the cross because my, my time on the cross is not as important to me as what's beyond the cross. The people that I've come for, that was the joy. So this is the big idea of Philippians 2. This is the challenge. This is maturity. This is growth. This is trying to find joy in any circumstance. We have to serve people. It's sacrificial. It's laying our, our life down. And Paul knew that we wouldn't necessarily like to hear it. No one likes to hear is not about you. Does anybody like that? No one likes to hear is not about you. So he spends the rest of the time in this chapter making it practical. So if this is the 30,000-foot view, have the attitude of Christ, be a servant, it's not about you, serve people, then our burning question is how do we do that? Well, Paul tells us, and the way he does it is so cool because he does it through a bunch of shout-outs. Take a look. Uh, in fact, here's the first thing I want you to write down that I see is a practical step in Philippians 2, and that is to dig it out. Come on, we're going to dig it out. Verse 12, he says, therefore, my dear friends, after telling us all about Jesus, all about living like him, all about what he's done. He's like, all right, here's what you got to do. Therefore, I'm going to give some shout outs to my, my Philippian people that are, are living this way. He said, you've always obeyed and you've done so good. Even when I was there with, with you in my, in my presence, like I, you've always obeyed. He says, but now how much more in my absence? Now that I'm gone, it's even more important that you keep getting after it. And he gives us practical steps. He says, here you go. Continue to work out. Somebody say work out. Work out your salvation. Continue to work at it. Don't you love the fact that God knows that none of us are perfect? That we are all in a process? That God has never been a God of perfection. He's always been a God of pursuit. So work it out. He's like, work out your salvation. It's okay. I know that we're not all in the same place. That's okay. I know that we're all coming from different, you know, walks of life, different back backgrounds. I, this to me is so encouraging 
This is so life-giving that Paul would say, hey, it's okay. I know, just work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you and will act according to his good purpose. Paul recognizes the truth. What truth? That we got, we got work to do. And that's somebody here today needs to hear that God loves you just as you are. Just as you are. No matter where you walked in today, no matter if you feel like you're a million miles from God, no matter what you, you feel like that God loves you, right? If, even if you feel like you're starting over, it's okay. He just says, just work it out. There's no condemnation for your past. We're not even dwelling on that. Wherever you are right now, that's where you are. Let's work it out. This phrase, by the way, work out salvation, is the Greek verb, uh, which means the same as to, to work a gold mine, to dig in a gold mine. And so this is Paul. He's literally saying to us, there is a whole lot of gold that God has for you. That if you would just realize that he is your source, that your, your resource for life, your resource for joy, your resource for peace, your resource for, for all these, these things, it's all in there. All you have to do is dig it out. Just dig it out. I think that's a great place to start. The second thing Paul would encourage us to do, to serve somebody, this is huge right here. Write it down. Be interested, not interesting. Don't just be interesting. It's all about me, self-promotion, self-absorption. Be interested in others. Can I tell you something? This right here, this is where the rubber meets the road when it comes to serving people. Because it does not matter. How many of you know we live in a world that's desperate for action? And we need people to rise up and to act. But it does not matter what you say. It only matters what you do. Doesn't matter if you, you say that you're interested. It only matters if you act on it. And that's what Paul would, would tell us. It doesn't matter what you say. It matters how you live out what it is that you're, you're saying. Take a genuine interest in others. Verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus, to send you Timothy. So it's another shout out. He's saying, my boy, Timothy, he's awesome. You're going to love him. He's going to come hang with you. He says, I hope to send him to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Watch this. I have no one else like him, like Timothy, who's so awesome that he takes a what? A genuine interest in your welfare. Everyone else, they're looking out for themselves. Everyone else is looking out for his own interest. Those are the, the joy killers, selfish ambition, vain conceit, he says, but not those of Jesus. Timothy takes a genuine interest in you. Paul is highlighting something that, that we're invited to live out, and that is to take a genuine interest in people and not, by the way, a Facebook interest because I think we get confused sometimes. That's not a real interest. Well, Colby, I'm interested in them. Like, I stalk them. I know what's happening in their life. I know where they went to lunch yesterday. That's not what he's saying. A genuine interest in people means that we care for people with our lives the way we claim to with our lips. That's taking a genuine interest. And Paul is challenging the Philippians, here's what you do. Man, Timothy is amazing. Man, he takes a genuine interest. He doesn't care about himself. He cares about, about you. Take an interest. So how do I do that, Colby? That's, that seems like a big task. How do I do that? Who do I do that for? I only have so many hours 
in a day to take a genuine interest in people, here's where you start. Write this down, not in your notes. You start with your sphere of influence because we all have one. And God has given you one. God's given you a sphere of influence in your life to, and you are to serve those in your sphere first. In fact, I'm going to give you three parts uh, to the sphere of, of influence that we have. The, the people that we're called to take a genuine interest in the first part, write it down, is my people, my peeps, those that are closest to us, our friends, our family. For me, it's Kristen, it's my wife, it's my boys, it's, it's my, my friends on staff here, it's, it's great leaders here that we have in the church, it's my, my BFF workout buddy, you know, it's, it's those guys that we are to take a genuine interest in first, the immediate people around us. This is what Mother Teresa said, I love it. Spread love everywhere you go, first of all, in your own house. How great is that? But how many of you know, sometimes the hardest people to love are those closest to you. Why is that? Like, why is that? I'm just going to be completely honest with you. Growing up, I was the most selfless person that I knew. Just unbelievably selfless just loving people, just super considerate. In fact, if Jesus was standing up here with me back then, you might not know who was who. <laughs> super selfless. And then I got married. And I realized I am the most selfish person on the planet. Right? Because now it's like I, I used to be in control of what I did or where I went or when I went. But now, you know, I, I'm married and it changes everything. Now, early on when Kristen and I were dating, it was still easy to be selfless because I wanted to serve her because I had my eye on the prize. Come on, somebody, the wedding day. And there was a, one particular part about the wedding day that I was looking forward to the most. The cake. It was the cake. I'm just kidding. <laughs> And then we got married and we said, I do. And then there was a person living in my house with me all the time. Like, and, and I would go to sleep at night and I'd wake up and she was still there right where I left her. And what used to be my domain was now our domain. And what used to be my apartment was now our apartment. It used to be that I could strategically leave my clothes in different locations around the apartment, like some on the couch, some on the bed, some on the floor, some by the door. It used to be that I could leave dishes in the sink that were dirty for weeks until I needed something clean. It used to be that when I went to Chick-fil-A and I ordered waffle fries, they were my waffle fries. And then I got married. And they're not my waffle fries anymore. I only want one. You're a liar. I will get you your own waffle fries. There's not that many in a bag. Are you with me? My waffle, back up off my waffle fries. And then we started to figure it all out. And we kind of got this, okay, living together thing, you know, kind of going. And then we had kids. And I realized that's it. I'm done. I'm just super selfish. That's it. Because I know God's word says children are a gift from the Lord. They are a gift of no sleep. That's what they are. And I like my sleep. Will and Kelsey, that's what you're experiencing right now. No sleep. Like I get it. And they're there all the time, by the way. It's like, won't you guys go someplace? We live here, Dad. We're four and nine and whatever. I'm like, get a job. Do something. Here's what I realized. I realized 
my joy could easily get robbed from the source of my greatest joy that God had blessed me with. It was my family. And the most valuable people in your life are the people that have your last name. And so those are the people that we are to serve first. Those are the people we're to serve the most. Um, here we go. Number two. My people, my, my place, my place. You guys are where you are, when you are, for a purpose. Meaning that God has placed you in this moment in time in your family, in the, your career, because he had a plan and a purpose for your life, that he formed you, the Bible says, he knit you together in your mother's womb, that he created a good work for you to do in, in advance of creating you. So it is on purpose that you are where you are. That's my point. And so you have a responsibility to the people in that sphere of influence that are in the place where you are. You are there to bring light. You are there to have, you know, help people have an encounter with God. You are there to be the hands and feet of Jesus right where you are. That's not by mistake. So that's a sphere of influence that you have in your life. You're not there at your job just to pocket a paycheck, by the way. You're not at that school to simply, you know, get an education. You are there to affect change. And to make a difference. That's your place. And the last one is your passion. You should just know that. Your passions, it's a sphere of influence. God wouldn't just give you a purpose without giving you a passion for that purpose. So a lot of times, you know, what people say is, you know, what's, what, what, what's my purpose? What's my purpose? Well, what are you passionate about? What keeps you up at night? You know, what's that thing that is a holy discontent that you say, you know what? That's wrong in the world. Someone should do something about that. Well, you know who? You, because God's giving you that, that passion. So those are our spheres of influence, my people, my place, my passions. How do we serve those? I have a friend, uh, Pastor Dino Rizzo, who says this, well, you find a need and you fill it. And you find a hurt and you heal it. And so you find a need in your home. You find a need in your school. You find a need in your work and you fill it. You serve them first. And here's what you'll discover, by the way, when you serve others, your problems get smaller because you take the focus off yourself and you put it where it matters the most. And you are living like Christ. You have the attitude of Christ where I came to serve, not to be served. Here's the last one, practical advice from Paul. Then we need to understand we cannot do this alone. Can't do this alone. In fact, our strength is in the unity of our diversity. Paul says, make my joy complete. How? By being of one mind, by being like-minded together, by being of one spirit, he says, by having one purpose, make my joy complete as you are unified together. And so he gives us a shout out to another guy named Epaphroditus. Everybody say Epaphroditus. <laughs> I couldn't wait to say that. Epaphroditus. In verse 25, this is what he says, I think it's necessary to send you my boy, Epaphra, that one. <laughs> this is what he says. He's a great guy. He's a brother. He's a fellow worker. And he is a fellow soldier. I think these three give us a clue as to how we're to serve people 
around us. So first we dig it out. We understand God is our greatest source. He has everything that we need. Second, we take a genuine interest in people. We care less about being interesting. Care more about genuinely being interested in others. And third, he reminds us we cannot do this alone. There is no such thing as a lone wolf. There are no El Solo Lobos. That we need each other. And so he says we got to cover our relationships with the, the, the right people, with intentional people. And the right people in your life, by the way, are the ones that multiply your joy, not divide it. They're the ones that, that will divide your sorrow in life, not multiply it. Those are the right people. And so who are the right people? First of all, he says your brothers. Come on, you got to have some brothers or your sisters. You need people in this life that you can run the race of life with. People that will run beside you. People that will, will encourage you. People that will hold you accountable. People that will, will lift you up when you, you need it. The Bible tells us, you know, the person who goes at it alone, man, woe to them. Danger is upon them. But, but two people together. That guy's in good shape. And this is why we say you got to get in a group. Is that all you guys talk about here at Elevate Church? Kind of. Kind of. Why? Because we understand the power and the importance of it. And we know how it can radically change your life and maybe even save your life. Because in a season like we've had, being isolated is not good. It's not good. So you got to have a brother. you got to have someone you can, you can run with, that you can do life with. So get connected. And by the way, this one right here, this is on you. It's on you. We're, we're all about doing our best to facilitate relationships, to facilitate great friendships and groups, but no one can do it for you. You got to find a brother. And then he says, well, you got to have a, a fellow worker. Can I tell you something? There is nothing like locking arms with people who are like-minded for one cause for a specific purpose. And this is what our, our serve teams, by the way, in this church are all about. Like the best part of, of serving is not what we get to do. And we get to do some great things. We got some people on cameras. There's a shout out to, to Jake on a camera in the back. We got Bobby running some lights and we got people serving coffee. Our coffee team, is anybody grateful for our coffee team? Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. We need some caffeine for our kids, people watching our kids. That's all great. All the things that we get to do are great. But the best part about it is that we do them together. Together. Where we lock arms together for a common purpose, a common goal in this church. And I love it. I love it. And that's what Crash Course is all about, which, by the way, this is week three of Crash Course. Right after the service, you can jump into week three. We'll get you connected to a team. But then he says what? My fellow soldier. Now, why would he say that? Why would Paul call that guy a soldier? Because he knew we're in a battle and this is war. And don't you feel that? Don't you feel that? the season that we're in, does it feel like a war? And so together our, our goal is, Paul tells us that, hey, one day, like at the name of Jesus, one day, every knee is going to bow. 
Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And that goes for everyone in this room. That goes for everyone watching online right now. One day that's going to happen either on this side of eternity or on the next. I'm just trying to get us to bow it on this side of eternity. Everyone's going to confess that, that he is Lord. And we are to present the bride of Christ, the church, to Jesus when he comes back and say, we did everything that we possibly could to make a difference and an impact for the kingdom of God right where we were. And we should know that when Jesus comes back, by the way, the Bible tells us there will be no mistaking who is in charge, that he is a warrior. The Bible says he is the captain, the Lord of the armies of heaven. And when he comes, there will be no mistake about it as a soldier. You're a soldier. We're in a fight. You're a soldier. You know, I grew up in the, the Salvation Army, going to church, Salvation Army. And we sang this song, and many of you probably sang it too. And wait one second, wait one second. It's called, um, I'm in the Lord's Army. Did anybody ever sing that song? I think it was called that. It was called, I may never, I don't know, but it went, it went, I may never march Some of you are like, what is going on? There's a bunch of crazy people. I hear mumbling. I have no idea. It was a song that we learned in Sunday school. And I'm a Sunday school kid, just so you know. It says, I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery, fly, or or the enemy, which they mean over, but they just couldn't spell over. I don't know. Fly or the enemy because I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. I'm in the the Lord's army. Can I tell you something? God right now is seated in heaven. He's seated in heaven and he is laughing at the enemy. That's what the Bible says. He's laughing at the enemy. He's laughing that the enemy would ever think he has a chance to thwart He has a chance to oppose. He has a chance to deter the plans of the God of the universe. He's laughing at him. The Bible says that God is kicked back right now with his feet up on the ottoman, that this little planet Earth is like an ottoman. This is a footstool. And he's just kicked back. And that's not to say that that God's just chilling, that God doesn't care. In fact, God is intimately involved in every detail of your life. He cares about you greatly. But what it's saying is this picture of God just kicked back in an ottoman, telling us that, you know what? He is not worried, that he is in control, that he is totally and completely sovereign and awesome. And one day he's coming back and the armies of the Lord are going to rise up that Jesus Christ has never lost a battle. He has never lost a fight. He is undefeated. He is undisputed. Let's just pray. Would you just hold your hands up this morning, God? We know that one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. And Paul tells us that to, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So in life we win, in death we still win. Because Jesus wins, we win. 
So I want to pray right now for those in this room or those watching online that you have never confessed the name of Jesus as Lord of your life. That today is the day you, you make that decision that God is drawing you to this moment to cross that line of faith, to surrender your life once and for all to Him. The Bible says as we confess Him with our lips, we believe in our heart, God raised Jesus from the dead, that we could be raised to new life. There is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And so maybe that's your prayer today. I want to lead you in a prayer that says that. It just confesses that we need Jesus now more than ever. You can say it out loud. You can say it in your heart. But let's just pray this together, church, with those around us that might be making that commitment for the very first time. God, we pray right now. Let's do it together. Repeat after me. Jesus, today, I give you my life. I am a sinner. I repent. I confess you as Lord and as Savior. Give me your spirit. Make me new. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church, celebrate with those today. Thanks for checking out this week's message on the Elevate Church podcast. And we hope you really enjoyed it. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. Welcome to the family. We would love to know about it, so please let us know by going to elevatechurch.com yes. There will be some practical resources that will help you as you start this journey. If you want to support the mission and vision of Elevate Church to help people far from God reach their full potential in Christ, go to elevatechurch.com give. We'll see you soon. Have a great week.